Let's pray. We just sang to you, our great God. We can't thank you enough. We can't fathom who you really are. But you have so graciously stooped low to help us understand a little bit about who you are. Lord Jesus, when you came, God in the flesh, we thank you. We praise you. Thank you for sending us your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the Spirit's inspiration on the men who wrote your word. And I pray now, Lord, that you'll help us to understand by your Spirit what this whole thing about tongues is all about and what about how to have order in the service, in your, in your church. So, Lord, we're asking that you would open our hearts and minds to this. Help us, Lord, to love you and to serve you by giving our undivided attention to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I taught ethics a number of years ago at a school that uh, will not be named because the president compromised himself recently, and I'm kind of embarrassed to be associated with this school at this point in time, the subject of spiritual gifts came up. In this class of about 250, a student told us about his parents who were missionaries in China. They were back home on, on vacation back in the States, and they were taking a walk in the park, and they met this Chinese couple. And they were very distraught. There's something was going on in their lives. And now both of these couples, they were speaking fluent Mandarin. And then after a while, this, uh, the student's parents asked if they could pray for this couple, and they said yes. And then after they fervently prayed for this couple, the Chinese couple looks at them and they said, how would you know our dialect? And the student's parent says, we didn't know your dialect. Well, the story is also told of a pastor from India. His name is Kuma, Reverend Kuma, and he was asked to preach the gospel to those who lived in a small village in the Assam province of eastern India. When he arrived, he discovered that the local residents spoke only in a language that he did not know. There was no interpreter there as well. And so rather than return home, he was led by the Spirit to preach in his own language for two hours to these people. And at the close of the message, he asked them to turn to Christ for salvation. And to his amazement, the entire village responded and gave their hearts to Jesus. And later he learned that they all heard him speak in their own language during those two hours that Pastor Kuma said these things, preached the gospel to him. And Pastor Kuma said that he has never, this has never happened to him before or since. Just one time. So was it a miracle of tongues or a miracle of healing or a hearing, I should say? But now compare these two stories with the testimony of a co-worker of mine that I worked with when I was stationed on Guam, still single at this time, and his experience at a place called the Happy Church in Denver, Colorado. And it was pastored by one Marilyn Hickey. And at 88 years old, she and her daughter are still working for God, and they are working among the Hindus and the Muslims, and they're also helping people get out of sex slave trafficking. That's what they're doing right now. 
My coworker told me that he had visited the Happy Church in, <laughs> it's kind of funny, isn't it? Happy Church, in the 70s, and they convinced him that he needed to be taught how to speak in tongues. And so they taught him, and so he did. <laughs> well, today we're going to be talking about the higher gifts, as Paul calls them, from two vantage points. One vantage point is what many in the Corinthians thought was the higher gift. And then Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said actually was the higher gift. You see, two different vantage points. Our passage for today is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 and 25. So if you don't have it open yet, go ahead and do that. But in these verses, Paul presents his case in many different ways, from a personal standpoint, hypothetical, and practical standpoint, to show the superiority of the gift of prophecy over what the Corinthians believed was the higher gift, which was the gift of speaking in tongues. So you have two different gifts, two different vantage points, gift of prophecy, gift of tongues. Which is the higher gift? Well, we're going to talk about those kinds of things. So as we know, speaking in tongues was and is a thing. It's a bona fide manifestation of the Holy Spirit. But what exactly was and is this manifestation? So we're going to talk about the day of Pentecost in a little bit later on in the message because the day of Pentecost is when the first incidents of speaking in tongues happened in the church. It was the birthday of the church, and gift of tongues happened at that point. But if you remember, about a week and a half, 10 days after Lord Jesus went back to heaven, 120 followers of Christ were in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, the day of Pentecost came, and God gave all of these 120 Christians the ability to speak in languages they had never studied and to speak fluently in these. Now, can you imagine right now that you would be speaking fluent Russian just all of a sudden or speaking fluent Mandarin Chinese? Can you imagine that? It's amazing. But this is what happened to these 120 disciples. And though it's sad, we can almost say that proper English could be considered speaking in tongues by some in parts of our country. But so much for the day of Pentecost at the moment. We're going to return again back to the day of Pentecost. And so a few decades later, after the day of Pentecost happened, the Holy Spirit gifted some in the church in Corinth with the gift of tongues. Now, according to some learned people, what the Corinthians experienced may have been just a little bit different than what they had experienced on the day of Pentecost in the temple. Now, some scholars think that the Corinthians' rendition of the gift of tongues was like an unintelligible groaning, very obvious display that something supernatural was happening. Others say the tongues was literally an angelic language. And still others say that the exercise of tongues was an ecstatic but controlled utterance. But regardless of how one describes it, we know that tongues was truly supernatural in that church, not just emotional. Because there are some people who say, you know, I can teach you how to speak in tongues. And it ultimately becomes just a, a, ma- a matter of just speaking emotionally. But this wasn't that. Now, there's something I need to point out, though, before we jump into this passage. Though tongues back then was exercised by a person. And remember the setting, though. 
This was corporate worship that Paul was talking about here. In other words, we're going to talk about what Paul talked about in this passage, about the issue of tongues in the corporate, not the private setting. See, because there's a lot of people who believe that tongues today is one's private prayer language. And I know some people who actually do that. Now, this has been used by the enemy to divide Christians over the years. Some people have the gift of tongues, a private prayer language. Other people don't, and they attack one another. Well, we're not going to talk about that today, okay? We're going to talk about the corporate setting. And so don't hold your breath by thinking, well, Glenn's going to be talking about the private prayer language thing because I'm not going to do that. We're going to talk about corporate setting concerning tongues today. But again, remember the overarching problem that Paul had when he was dealing with this and what he was continuing to correct the Corinthians over and over again. It was about disunity, about one-upsmanship, spiritual pride and status-seeking, all these kinds of things. And of course, nowhere would this be more prevalent than the one who speaks in tongues in corporate worship. I mean, can you see it in your mind's eye? Think about this. Everybody is fervently singing or praying or a person standing up and presiding over over the service and, and trying to read the message that Paul wrote and trying to give some sense to help people understand this. And then all of a sudden, there's an outburst. Strange, very loud sounds coming out of a person's mouth, so loud it would no doubt wake the dead. People are waiting for the rapture. And then things quiet down. And a few minutes later, the same thing happens, only more, is much different than what you just heard a few minutes ago. This is the kind of thing that was happening there in the church in Corinth. Now, something was, was happening was totally out of this world. It was it was otherworldly. Was it an angel's message from God? Who knows? See, the tongue speaker certainly here was the center of attention. This believer shows that she has a main line with God, and it would be very easy for the church body to treat this person in awe and respect and wonder, for after all, she spoke mysteries of God in this divine heaven-sent utterance. Again, this is what was happening there in the church in Corinth. So what to do with this? How to handle this situation? And this is what Paul's going to talk about here. And by the way, this may be the reason why Paul actually addressed and spilled ink over three chapters about the gifts of the Spirit. This is one of the reasons why he addressed this issue. And he said in in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters... I don't want you to be uninformed. And so Paul was now going to be talking about, in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, some divinely given instructions about this use and abuse of the gift of tongues there in the church in Corinth. And so these are observations that Paul lays out for his case, his case of the superiority, not of tongues, but of the word and the gift of prophecy. See, the Corinthians thought the gift of tongues was the priority gift. But Paul says, no, no, it's the gift of prophecy. That's the priority gift. And so, Paul says, basically, that the gift of prophecy is far more helpful in the church than is the gift of tongues here. 
And so let's read together verses 1 to 5 to begin to talk about this thing. And Paul is talking here about the pluses and minuses of the tongues versus prophecy gifts. So let's read. Pursue love, starting in verse 1 in chapter 14, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want all of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, in verses 1 to 5, we see Paul listing here some pluses and minuses about tongues and prophecy, again, in the corporate worship setting. So this morning, I want us to play a game. And you see here on the screen, in a minute, click next. Okay, there you go. There you go. Now, I've, I've, I've kind of amassed a couple of the statements about what Paul was talking about concerning tongues and concerning prophecy. And so these are some of the pluses and minuses. And so as we go through, tell me what you think. Are these pluses or are these minuses? So let's talk, start with the tongues first. Again, in a corporate worship setting, is this a plus or is it a minus concerning tongues? A person who speaks in tongues, he speaks to God alone and no one understands him. Is tongues a plus or a minus in a corporate worship setting? Minus, absolutely. He utters mysteries in the spirit. Again, it's not interpreted and we'll talk about interpretation in a minute. But is that a plus or a minus? I'd say a minus. And he builds himself up. Is that a plus or a minus? That's a minus, yeah. But now, concerning prophecy. Prophecy speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Is that a plus or a minus? Plus, absolutely. And it builds up the church. Is that plus or minus? Plus. And you can see the pluses and minus. So which is the greater gift? Prophecy, absolutely. That's right. That's right. And so here, Paul's conclusion about the pluses and minus concerning the prophetic gift versus, versus tongues. In verse 5, he says, he wanted them all to speak in tongues. He was desirous of everybody in, in the Corinthian church to have a personal spiritual experience with the Lord. But now, it's a good thing to have a spiritual experience as long as the spiritual experience is based on truth. Remember what Jesus said, eternal life is. He said, eternal life is that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Is that not a personal experience? Absolutely. A personal experience based on truth, though, that's the issue here. But with that said, though, what are the spiritual gifts in the church for? What's the purpose that the Holy Spirit has gifted the church. What's it for? What are they for? They were to build up the church. They were to help us to become mature in Christ. That's what the spiritual gifts are for. Now, this is the major difference, Paul is saying here, between the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues in corporate worship. Simply put, tongues are individual-centered. 
And prophecy is church-centered. When the corporate... In, when the corporate worship becomes individual-centered, guess what happens? Guess who gets shoved away off to the side? It's the Lord. The Lord is no longer centered then at that point. And to the degree that God is not front and center, but individuals are, is the degree that God does not accept our worship. It really is a big deal who is front and center here. So the bottom line here is that God is to be worshipped and God's people are to be built up. And that happens through the Holy Spirit's gifting his church. But the good news is, though, that even with tongues, when they're accompanied with an interpretation, it builds up the church. Well, how is that? When someone speaks in a tongue and the interpretation is given, what does that interpretation do? It turns into a what? It turns into a prophecy where people are built up. So the tongues attract the attention, but then the interpretation gives the prophecy and gives the building up. You see how it works? And by way of reminder, though, see, because a lot of people think when they think of prophecy, they think of the gift of prophet. They think of all kinds of things. And usually it is when we think about prophecy, we're usually thinking about predictions of the future, don't we? Oftentimes we hear that. In that, in that vein, you know, think of biblical prophecy. Well, what's going to happen at the end times? What's going to happen with the Antichrist and all that kind of stuff? Well, that may be some sense of prophecy, but that's not what it is right here. And though a person has the gift of prophecy, sometimes tells the future. The vast majority of the time, prophecy means this. God's people is receiving God's message. For example, in the Old Testament... The prophet Isaiah gave a number of prophecies, predictions about the coming Messiah, about 40 of them. But how many chapters are in Isaiah? How many words, how many verses are in Isaiah? A lot. There's a whole lot more going on than just 40 prophecies, predictions about the Messiah. There's about 1,300 verses, for example, in this book. And so like a spiritual physician, God speaks through the prophets, to let his people know of their condition. He warns them about what happens if they don't repent of their sins. And he reminds them, though, of his love and protection and deliverance and so much more. That's what a prophet does. And so a word of prophecy is much more than just a mere prediction of the future. It is, is, it is really geared toward God's people to build them up, to encourage them. And again, this is what Paul means here when he says the gift of prophecy. It's for the building up of God's people, to give them encouragement. It's to say, keep going in your testimony, in your faithfulness to the Lord when you're outside the walls and outside this church assembly here. Now, of course, as we know, the prophet sometimes needs to step on toes, and he or she has the courage to do that, right? You ever experienced a prophet? <laughs> People go, uh-huh, absolutely. But, you know, there's, again, there's so much more to it than that. And so based on the truth of God's word, the prophet's primary job is to say, keep going, church. Keep at it. Keep being faithful to the Lord. This is prophecy in action. 
And speaking of prophecy and action, let's look at verses 6 to 12 and see Paul now logically laying out his case for the value of prophecy. But then also, notice here how he does it. Simply put, Paul highlights a huge drawback of the unbalanced use of tongues in this, in this scenario, in corporate worship. In verses 6 to 12. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues... How will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what's being played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for the battle? So with yourselves, if your tongue, if with your tongue you utter speech that is unintelligible, How will anyone know what is said? For you're going to be speaking just to the air. Now, there are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. And I do, but if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So, with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in the building up of the church. So what's Paul saying here? In a word, tongues without an interpretation offers no benefit to the church. If one powerfully shows that the Holy Spirit's activity moving through this individual as they're speaking in tongues, but the people around can't understand what's being said, it's like speaking Swahili, is it not? We can't understand it, and so how can we, how can we benefit from it at all? See, the most that God's people can say to an individual like this is like, wow, God's speaking through you. That's cool. And, you know, if this is a real real Holy Spirit thing, we stand in awe. We can. Because this this person has kind of like a main line to God, you know? But it's kind of like watching a video, isn't it? It's passive. We can't fully enter into someone's speaking in tongue experience if we don't know what they're saying. So interpretation is is absolutely vital. And by way of application, isn't that sort of like trying to worship via a video screen? Like having service at home? (laughs) See, the difference between, you know, being live and, and, and doing something remotely, it's like, it's like difference between like, like reading about heaven and actually being there. You know, you see what I'm saying? You know, how much better is it to be in heaven than it is to read about heaven? So what did Paul say in this regard? In Philippians 1.21, he says, for me to, to live is Christ, but what? To die is gain. Why is it to die is gain? It's so much better being there, is it not? See, if viewing someone's spiritual experience like speaking in tongues without an interpretation is sufficient, then we can just kind of look at it or we can just kind of read about it and that would be good enough. But God did not wire us to be satisfied with, as Charles Spurgeon said, secondhand religion, where we just live off of someone else's walk with the Lord. We must have our own, even as we talked about, as, as we heard a testimony earlier today. And so, going back to the prophet Isaiah, 
And I want us to go there and actually look at this, at his vision. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. And as we look at Isaiah 6, we are going to see and read again about Isaiah's vision of what he personally experienced. So Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Stop right there. Let's assume for a second that Isaiah did not have this experience, but Isaiah was reading about somebody else's experience. Okay, you got the picture? How do you think Isaiah would respond to this man's experience that he was just reading about? You know, he could be kind of taken in depending on if he was really captured by the words or, you know, depending on what he was feeling and doing that day, maybe he he was like yawning. Okay, so whatever, you know, or maybe he's thinking, you know, I wish I could have that experience. But let's continue with the vision in verses five to eight. And Isaiah said, woe is me. For I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. This was Isaiah's experience here. Now you tell me, if Isaiah only read about somebody else's experience with the Lord, how likely would have Isaiah responded the way he did? Do you think he would enthusiastically said, here I am, Lord, send me? And probably not. He might have, but we don't really know. But the point is this, corporate worship is to be experienced corporately, all of us, all of us. It's not about one individual. In this case, it's not about the individual speaking in tongues with no interpreter. See, we all need to benefit. That's why we all need to understand what's going on here. And as the Lord tells us in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, he says, we are to love the Lord. How? with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And so back to 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul asks, how can you who are speaking in tongues be a benefit to the church? Here's what he says in verse 12. Since you're eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. In other words... Let others in on your experience. Have the interpretation here, he's saying. See, when someone speaks in tongues in corporate worship, the only way that it's useful, if there is an interpretation. 
And that's exactly what Paul is getting to, getting to in verses 13 to 19. So let's, let's turn there. He says, therefore, if one who speaks in a tongue, he should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is what? It's unfruitful. So what am I to do with this? Paul says, I will pray with my spirit, pray in tongues, but I will pray with my mind also. And what does that mean? Interpretation. I will sing praise with my spirit, pray in tongues, but I will pray with my mind also. Interpretation. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider, someone who's just kind of watching the experience, say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may be well giving thanks enough. You might be, in other words, Paul is saying here, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God, Paul says, I speak in tongues more than all of you do. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct you than 10,000 words in a tongue. So Paul's common sense approach and understanding of the proper use of tongues is very clear, wouldn't you agree? Notice in verses 13 to 15 how Paul bluntly says that the exercise of tongues without interpretation is practically useless, even in his own personal life. He says, in essence, I must have understanding when I pray. I must have understanding when I sing. If not, then a big part of my being is being left out. I'm not worshiping the Lord. I'm not loving the Lord with my mind because I don't understand it. And he basically says the same thing in a corporate worship setting in verses 16 and 17. In essence, Paul says, you can't expect the brothers and sisters to agree with your spiritual offering of tongues if they can't understand a word that you're saying. You may be or may not be, because remember, tongues can be counterfeited too, right, by an evil spirit. You may be giving thanks, but the other person doesn't know that. So your display really is about you, brother or sister, while the other brother or sister that is experiencing or from a distance, what are they doing? They're kind of outside of the spiritual limelight, outside of the cold, in the spiritual cold, while you have a wonderful worship experience. You're experiencing something great, but they're not. So what is it? It's all about you. And Paul says, uh-uh, that's the wrong answer, guys. So in verses 18 and 19, Paul sums up this section with the great statement of contrast. He says basically like this. Hey, listen, I can catch a boat to Corinth. I can come over there and I can show you how good I am with the tongues thing. I can speak it more than any of you guys can. But I would rather, much rather speak only a, a tiny amount of words so that I can instruct you in the ways of the Lord than to demonstrate how fluent I am in a heavenly language. So what do we have so far? How many different ways can Paul make his case? He has made a side-by-side comparison of tongues and, and prophecy, and tongues when uninterpreted is found woefully lacking in the corporate worship. Paul logically presented his case for prophecy, and in a nutshell, he says, hey, listen, guys, I got to have some understanding here in order to fully love the Lord. 
I can't just check my brains at the door here. And even personally, Paul is saying, I need some understanding of knowing what I'm, what I'm doing in my worship of the Lord. And so does everybody else, he's saying. See, corporate worship is not a time to show off one's spirituality. It is we all need to come together to bring all of ourselves to the corporate worship together to worship the Lord and to spiritually serve one another. And now in verses 20 to 25, Paul gives mature instruction in how tongues and prophecy have the same source. It's the Holy Spirit. Both manifestations come from Him. And though prophecy is better in the corporate setting, both gifts to the congregation are indeed valuable. Brothers, sisters, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. Or as, as I'd heard it put, be simpletons when it comes to sin. But in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is, not, is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not saying that y'all are crazy? Or, I'm sorry, out of your minds? <laughs> but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So what's that all about? In a nutshell, it's all about seeing the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in its proper place. In the case of tongues, which the Corinthians so highly prized to show off their hyper-spirituality, Paul actually says this manifestation is a judgment on an unbeliever. How so? And here Paul puts out a final illustration. It's a hypothetical one. He says, if all of you are speaking in tongues, an unbeliever walks in, he's just going to say again, you're out of your mind, you're crazy. See, in other words, hypothetically, if every one of us, let's imagine this, if every one of us all of a sudden were speaking in tongues, an unbeliever were to come in, what would, how would he respond? How would she respond? See, God is moving in our midst in a powerful way, but an unbeliever can't understand it. And so how, what would an unbeliever label this as? Insanity. See, remember at the beginning of this letter, Paul said, me preaching the gospel to a person who's unsaved is foolishness. It's moronic. It's the same way here. When an unbeliever sees a, a powerful demonstration of the Spirit through tongues, what is he going to conclude? Because he doesn't have the Spirit, what is he going to conclude? This is ridiculous. See, because tongues require a spiritual explanation. Since an unbeliever doesn't have access to the Spirit of God, he's going to conclude that this is nuts. As one commentator said, this situation reveals just how far apart an unbeliever is from a believer. The unbeliever is spiritually dead. The believer is spiritually alive. And unbelievers scoff at things that they can't understand Again, hypothetical situation. 
And why is it hypothetical? Because Paul said that no congregation, everybody has the same manifestation of the Spirit. Remember what he said. Like, for example, in 1217, he says, if everybody was an eye, in other words, if everybody had the same manifestation of the Spirit, where would the hearing be? No, it takes a diversity of gifts here. And though tongues are a sign for the non-believer, prophecy is actually a sign for the believer. How is that? Simply put, a believer is spiritually alive and can receive the comfort and encouragement from, from a tongue, from an interpretation, from a prophecy, from all these things. And then when we as believers share together God's prophetic utterances of truth, and comfort, encouragement, we're all built up. And we're ready to go back out there and be the missionaries that God has called us to be in our world. But here Paul hypothetically again applies the gift of prophecy because again, no congregation has all prophets in their midst. And Paul is saying here, when all are prophesying, now the unbeliever hears something, hears truth about his spiritual condition. Because he can understand what's being said, what happens? The Holy Spirit then convicts his heart. He then realizes he is out of sorts between him and God. And so what does he do? He's convicted. He falls on his face. He gets saved. And now he worships the Lord. Again, it's hypothetical because not everybody speaks in tongues and not everybody prophesies. The gift is only given to certain ones. But think with me, though. How did tongues and prophecy come together on the day of Pentecost? It did, you know, right? See, when the 120 believers all spoke in tongues, that got non-believers' attention. True? They all came running. And what did they conclude? Y'all just drunk. Yeah, and, and Peter said, no, no. He, as the prophet now, was now acting as the role of the prophet. He was giving the interpretation. The interpretation is, listen, this is the outpouring of the Spirit. And by the time Peter was done nailing the unbelievers to the wall with the truth, what happened? 3,000 souls were saved that day. Prophecy and tongues worked together then. And so the point is this. But Paul actually turned the tables on those who viewed the tongues as that which showed off their super spirituality. Indeed, when someone speaks in a tongue with no interpretation in the assembly, it gets people's attention, but that's about it. Non-believers scoff, and they turn away, and believers don't understand and aren't helped. But it's the Holy Spirit's manifestation of prophecy, which is of help, not only to the believer to encourage them, but also to expose the unbeliever's sin and their condition before God. So what do we make of all of this here? As we're talking about, I don't know about you guys, but I've never experienced someone actually do tongues in a worship service. Have you? So how can we apply this here in a situation that we've never experienced before? Well, first, let's remember and apply the manifestations that the Holy Spirit has given us to build up one another. He may not have, you know, endowed us with tongues and prophecy and all that kind of stuff, but he has given us manifestations of the Spirit. Why? So that we might build one another up. 
so that we might love one another, we might pray for one another, to honor one another, and so many more of these things, these one another's of Scripture that God has given us. See, a lot has been made over the years about, you know, when you get saved, you become a Christian, that God has given you a spiritual gift, and that is yours for the rest of your days. You know, how many of us have not taken some kind of a spiritual gift inventory over the years? You know, I used to believe all that stuff. I used to, to, to do this. But again, going through 1 Corinthians, studying all this, my theology has changed now. And so for me, here's the bottom line. Christians have, by definition, made themselves available to the Holy Spirit for use in the church. And that's it. See, that means when you see a need in someone's life, regardless of whether you feel like you are qualified to meet the need, make the attempt to meet the need. And trust that the Holy Spirit is going to give you the wherewithal and the ability to meet that need. Now, obviously, there's a a difference between gifts and talents, right? We know what the difference is. And, you know, if, if you feel like, you know, hey, I want to serve the Lord by singing. But let's say, in actuality, you can't carry a tune in a bucket. Maybe you want to serve the Lord first by getting some voice lessons. And then you can serve the Lord that way. Or maybe, you know, you want to, you know, help out with a tech table, for example. But you know squat about tech table. You want to humble yourself, and then you want to get some training in order to serve the Lord that way. But how many one another's are there in Scripture that don't require special skill, don't require special talent? There are many of those. And so my challenge for us is this week, give a little homework here, is that we would read through the epistles, read through the, the letters, and find out the phrase one another in Scripture. And then as you make a list of the one another's, invest yourself and do at least one of those one another's with somebody else. Can you do that? Do that this week. A second point of application I have for us today is that we learn bluff. That's the second application is bluff. Bluff. Now, what is bluff? It's an acronym. I love acronyms, if you don't know. I love acronyms. Now, some of you might be familiar with bluff. Have you ever heard of bluff before? <laughs> that's bluffing, yes. <laughs> but that's not bluff. Bluff is simply what Paul did in this passage. He bluffed us. Did you know that? Paul bluffed us in this passage. See, because Paul began his point the first couple of words in this chapter. Bluff means bottom line up front. And so what Paul did, he told us the whole point of the passage, pursue love. That's bluff. Bottom line up front. Regardless of prophecy or tongues or whatever, the bottom line up front is that we as believers are to pursue love. Pursue agape. Pursue what he just talked about in 1 Corinthians 13. And especially verses 4 to 8. And before we simply read this description to remind us of what it's all about of these verses. Remember when we did talk about 1 Corinthians 13 and how I mentioned to you that these descriptions of love are active words. 
not so much states of being. In other words, love is patient, yes, but that doesn't mean that, that I live in a state of patience. No, love is patient, meaning I do patient things for, I, I, I show patience. I show it to somebody else actively. I do kind things for people. That's love is kind. And so with that in mind, let's simply review the description of Paul's idea of of agape, of love. He says, love is patient. Again, love does patient things or acts patiently. Love is kind, acts kindly. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So Paul's bottom line, Paul's bluff, is that we are to pursue love. We are to show one another love by doing the one another's of Scripture. We're to build others up, strengthen one another, so that when we leave here, we are ready to be the missionaries that God has called us to be, the witnesses that God has called us to be in our world, in our spheres of influence. Robert Bella, a sociologist who teaches at the University of California, Berkeley, this is a a dated illustration, so I'm not sure if he's still there or not, but he was very interested in the influence of religion on the community. In an interview in Psychology Today magazine, he said, we should not underestimate the significance of even small groups of people who have a unified, a new unified vision of a different way of life for the culture. The quality of culture may be changed when just 2% of its people have a new vision. 2%. That's all it takes, according to this guy. Now, how many true Christians are there in our culture? You think there's more than 2%? There's, yeah, true Christians. Maybe about eight. Ten, perhaps. A whole lot more than just two, right? So, my question, why aren't we having more effect on our culture? Why aren't we having a bigger impact? Well, pastor and author John Stott remarked this way. He says, I pray that God will call you, call us, to permeate non-Christian society for Christ." to take your stand there uncompromisingly with the value system and moral standards of Jesus. We don't do that nowadays, do we? We have bought into what the world says love is. We bought into what the world says just about everything else, except for we don't make a stand when it comes to what Jesus wants us to make a stand for. And may I add this? That may mean that the Lord might call us to suffer as we take a stand for the Lord and His ways. But even if we do suffer, will it not be worth it all when we get to the other side and we hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant? That's what I want to hear. What about you guys? Let's pray. We long for that day, Lord Jesus, to hear from you. Well done, 
good and faithful servant. Lord, you don't deal with our intentions. You're not going to tell anybody on that day, well-intended, kind of half-hearted servant. You're going to tell people, well done, good and faithful servant. We want to hear those words, Lord. Help us, Lord, as we serve one another, pray for one another, honor one another. Help us, Lord, to love the way that you called us to love one another. Help us to be the witness that you've called us to be. Lord, help us to to put aside all those things that would distract us. Help us, Lord, to live holy lives before you, regardless of what the world says, regardless of what the culture says. And we will give you honor and give you praise even as we stand. Give us the strength to do that, Lord. And now I pray, Father, as we finish up the service time today, thank you for allowing us to, to engage our minds, our hearts with your word. I pray now, Lord, as we sing, that we'll sing with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. As we give, help us to give with a heart that's overflowing and full of gratitude for what you've done for us. And we'll give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.